Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. New cars are designed to be safer for drivers and passengers, but what about if you're walking or bicycling? Over the last decade, the number of pedestrian fatalities in the U.S. has increased by 50%. In Connecticut, deaths have more than doubled. Today, where we live, we look at the reasons behind this public safety issue. Coming up, we'll learn how other communities in our region are rethinking road designs to keep pedestrians safe. We'll hear from Somerville, Massachusetts. We'll also talk with Norman Garrick about his research into pedestrian fatalities. He's professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Connecticut. First, in response to this increase in pedestrian deaths nationwide, uh, the Connecticut Department of Transportation launched a pilot program last month to crack down on people who don't use crosswalks and motorists who don't yield to pedestrians in crosswalks. Uh, New Haven was one of the seven police departments to receive up to $15,000 each. That's according to the Hartford Current uh, to participate in the pilot program. And there was strong reaction uh, when the New Haven Police Department uh, started to uh, enforce uh, this program on the streets of New Haven. Uh, Paul Bass, editor of the New Haven Independent, explained what happened to Connecticut Public's Ray Hardman uh, last month. Okay, Church and Chapel is one of several intersections in downtown New Haven that have become very dangerous. They, uh, people just drive like maniacs. And people like me too often are looking at our phones when we're walking. Cyclists get hit. We've had periods in this last year in 2019 New Haven where more people are getting killed by drivers than by bullets. It's out of control. So New Haven got some money along with other communities through the state to promote safety for pedestrians, cyclists, and motorists. So they did a pilot for a few weeks where a couple days a week they were going to go out to the dangerous intersections like Chapel and Church and do a combination of education and enforcement. They're going to tell people, hey, that's not the right way to drive, that's not the right way to cross, and give out some tickets. So what happened was our reporter was out there, and they decided that people should know that you can't cross diagonally at an intersection. You have to go at the two right angles in the crosswalk. At Church and Chapel, when the light, the walk light is green, when there are no cars going, everybody goes diagonal. Part of that's a basic reason. You don't have time to go both. So everyone goes diagonal, but instead of giving them warnings, they were giving $92 tickets, and people freaked out. Again, that's the editor of the New Haven Independent, Paul Bass. Now, after the New Haven Independent reported this story, uh, the police chief, Antonio Reyes, ordered his officers to hand out warnings instead of tickets to pedestrians. Uh, He joins us now by phone to talk about their participation in this pilot program. Uh, Chief Reyes, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so talk a little bit about you know, how serious are these uh, pedestrian crashes in New Haven? Uh, have you seen an uptick? We have. And as, as Paul you know, mentioned, um, you know, we had nine people killed last year. And almost the same number of people killed um, for vehicle-related um, incidents as we did homicides. 
So to say it's a, it's a serious problem, it, it absolutely is for us. Uh, when uh, we hear about these uh, fatal crashes, uh, again, this pilot was uh, looking to uh, educate pedestrians and motorists. But in terms of uh, the crashes that happened, uh, can we talk about this, the situation uh, that um, occurred, uh, that these pedestrians were getting hit by cars? Well, they were they were for various reasons, obviously, and and what we noticed were that they were they they were they spanned throughout the city. Um, some of them had to do with distracted driving. Some of them had to do with uh, misuse um, of the highway by 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 a pedestrian. Um, but um, but but it's but it's a multifaceted issue. And when we took this approach um, and we participated in this pilot program, our issue our our goal. Well, it was to address uh, this this very serious public safety issue that's not endemic to New Haven. Obviously, as you mentioned at the beginning of your show, this is this is happening all around the country, and so we realize that this is a distracted driving issue, a speeding issue, a street design issue, um, and and in some cases a distracted pedestrian issue. And so there's no easy easy solution. Mm-hmm. Uh, we heard uh, Paul Bass uh, describe that uh, in December, again, there were uh, residents in New Haven that were getting ticketed for walking diagonally uh, in these uh, these intersections. I've done that before. I think many of us have done that. You know, when uh, both sides are showing the walk uh, flashing, uh, why is that something that would cause them to get a ticket? Well, obviously, by, by walking diagonally, it puts it puts the pedestrian at greater risk of of uh, of not being able to make it through the intersection uh, in time, but more importantly, um, at an intersection um, when someone crosses diagonally, uh, a vehicle may be turning right and not see them, um, and there may be they may be walking into the right of way of uh, of, uh, of a vehicle, um, and so that, you know again that's that's a, a street design issue that's uh, that's something that we definitely need to look at. Um, and, you know, one thing that we want to say, or one thing that I want to make very clear, at the end of the day, the, the greatest responsibility lies with the operator. Um, when someone's driving a vehicle, they pose the greatest threat because, um, because obviously there's no room for error. Um, but we feel that balancing that with education to everyone that's using uh, the roadways um, is a step in the right direction mm-hmm. in terms of safety. Uh, went back to that uh, December 20th uh, when uh, some of your officers were ticketing uh, pedestrians and then uh, after there was some uh, public uh, backlash, uh, uh, you mm-hmm. decided to have your officers not ticket but um, just give warnings. So can you talk about, you know, why you made that decision? Well, we even took it a step further, um, you know, when we got that type of feedback. And, you know, it's, it's actually an opportunity. Um, we deal with a lot of issues. And to be able to get that type of feedback immediately and for us to be able to look at um, the actions that we're implementing or the, 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 our attempts to solve the problem and be able to take a step back and, and get that type of feedback, that, that, that's always a positive thing. And, and even though there was some, some outcry, um, I think it's an opportunity to create awareness for this issue. So we did. We t- we, you know, I, went to, I took it a step further and I took the tickets back. Um, because uh, we realized very quickly that this was not um, the way we wanted to approach this issue, mm. um, and so we, we took a step back. I took the we took the tickets back, and 
Um, we we re- reached out to everyone that received the ticket to make sure that no one paid for it. Uh, you mentioned earlier that as operators, uh, again, the driving uh, these cars, uh, they uh, can uh, cause uh, someone to die if they're hit uh, by a car, uh, whether it's a pedestrian or a bicyclist. So you know, what does the, the law say in Connecticut in terms of, of what happens when there is a crash, uh, when someone, again, hits somebody, whether it's in a crosswalk or not in a crosswalk? Again, the, the the law does put the onus on the operator, you know, and there, there's several laws um, to try to prevent distracted driving and obviously, you know, impaired driving. Um, but I think the, draws need, the laws do need to get tougher. Um, there needs to be uh, there, there needs to be some sort of uh, the consequence needs to get it needs to get uh, more strict for for uh, for people that are driving distracted or, or creating a hazard for pedestrians. No doubt about that. Mm. So uh, you said the law needs to become more strict. So getting a fine for using your cell phone, uh, you still see people doing that time and time again in your city? Absolutely. Um, I, I think everyone does. I, I don't think you go a day without driving by and looking to your right or left and seeing uh, people on a cell phone texting, um, um, using the phone and and it's and it's our responsibility as as operators to to use the roads as safely as possible. So it's something that we are trying to crack down on more. Um, and but I think making stricter laws is going to definitely make people consider when they pick up that phone. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, uh, again, this pilot program, uh, I think it ends at the end of January. So what happens after that uh, for your uh, police department? Again, your officers are there to enforce uh, the law. Um, but in terms of trying to make the streets safer for everyone uh, that, that are using them, I mean, what are some of, uh, I guess, some of the ideas that, that you have or would like to see happen in the city of New Haven uh, to make that happen for, for people? Yeah, I mean, I think this is something that, again, this was opportunity, an opportunity for us to create awareness to a very serious issue. And my goal um, in 2020 is going to be to engage all the stakeholders in this. Um, There are a lot of um, organizations that feel very strongly about this. I want to engage with the legislature. Obviously, we have a new mayor that is very passionate about this issue. I'm looking forward to working with him. Um, We're looking forward to doing everything we can to try to, um, increase safety, and so this this is gonna this is a multifaceted approach. It's gonna take all of us putting our heads together. Unfortunately, um, sometimes it takes an issue like this or or, or an attempt um, to solve an issue to create more more awareness. In this particular case, unfortunately, the cop on the beat uh, is dealing with issues that society hasn't been able to figure out, and um, but it creates an awareness. Um, to the issue, and it allows us to come together to try to come up with the best way to solve it. So does that mean moving forward, Chief Reyes, that your officers will not be uh, uh, cracking down on pedestrians who may not be using crosswalks uh, by giving them tickets? Well, um, our, our goal is not to give tickets for jaywalking. We, don't, we, we clearly see that, that is, that's not having the, 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 desired, um, the desired impact. Our goal is not to to penalize the pedestrian. Uh, again, um, a pedestrian crossing in the crosswalk um, it does not pose the greatest threat. It's, it's the distracted driver. It is the responsibility of the driver to pay attention. However, we do realize that the pedestrians have a part in this. And if educating pedestrians and creating awareness to this in the future is going to keep our pedestrians safer, then I, I, I don't, I'm not taking that off the table. I think that 
one thing that we saw with this pilot program is that people just in one week were changing their behavior in terms of in terms of usage, the pedestrian use of the highway. So um, while we don't think that ticketing people is the solution, we do think that the education portion of it was effective and 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 helped keep people safe. Again, uh, Antonio Reyes is the New Haven Police Chief. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Chief Reyes. It's our pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, today we're talking about this rise of pedestrian fatalities nationwide. Uh, even here in our state of Connecticut, uh, over the last decade, uh, the number of pedestrians killed uh, in these crashes has more than doubled. Uh, to hear more about uh, this, uh, joining us uh, from a studio in Zurich is Norman Garrick, who's a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Connecticut. Uh, Norman, welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thank you for having me, Lucy. Uh, so I mentioned you're uh, in Zurich. So what's your reaction when you hear about a pilot program such as this, uh, New Haven and, and six other police departments taking advantage of, uh, of money from the State Department of Transportation uh, to uh, educate people about laws, but in some sense, as we saw, uh, pedestrians getting penalized uh, for the so-called jaywalking? Well, I actually agree with the pol- police um, com- leader. Um, I- he says that this is a multifaceted issue, and I totally agree. And I think, unfortunately, uh, the emphasis with this program is on the wrong thing. Um, it's in some ways blaming the victim for um, their their injury and death. So when we when we hear about these statistics, you know, I was surprised to learn that uh, pedestrian fatalities are up nationwide. Uh, you have uh, looked into this, uh, you and other researchers. You know, what are some of the reasons behind uh, these fatalities uh, going up over the last decade? Because before then, before uh, two thousand nine, there was actually a, a, they were seeing a decline. Well, the, the interesting story is the. Partly about the decline. Um, the decline happened not so much because we were getting safer, but because there were less people to kill, because basically we were having less and less people walking. Um, and I think that was a big reason for the decline over the last 30 years. What has happened since then um, partly is about uh, more people being on the roads in our cities, but also it seems from the data that I have seen that vehicles are getting deadlier in terms of their effect on pedestrians. When you say vehicles are getting deadlier, uh, a lot of attention on uh, SUVs, the size of uh, these vehicles, uh, certain grills in front of trucks, uh, that can't be good if there's an obstacle in front of them. Norman, are you there? Oh, I think Norman Garrick uh, can't hear us now. Yeah, he's joining us from a, a studio in Zurich. Uh, Norman, are you there? Well, we hope to continue talking with him. Again, he is a, a civil and environmental engineer at the university, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Connecticut. As we look at uh, this rise of pedestrian fatalities uh, nationwide, uh, Norman, I'm going to try you one more time before we head to break. Are you there? I'm here, oh. yes. <laughs> All right. Well, um, we talked about the design of vehicles. So uh, SUVs are more and more popular, uh, trucks that have grills in front of them. Uh, this uh, obviously adds to them being uh, deadly if they they hit something in their way. Yes. So I'm not sure it's just about SUVs. The, what the data that I've looked at shows is that if a pedestrian is hit by a car, the chance of them being killed is much greater now than it was 10 years ago. 
And it's not entirely clear to me based on the research that I've seen. But what we do know is that there is a much worse outcome if you're hit by a car now now than 10 years ago. When you so, look- uh, Norman, are you there? This is what happens when we book a guest from Zurich. <laughs> this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We're going to hope to get that uh, that kink fixed after the break. We're also going to look to another uh, uh, area in our region and how they're working to improve uh, pedestrian safety. You can join our conversation, too. Here's the number, 888-720-9677. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Now, would you walk or bike to work, or do you think it's too dangerous? You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Today, we're talking about the rise in pedestrian fatalities nationwide, including in Connecticut. Over the last decade, the number of people who've been hit by a car and killed has more than doubled in our state. Now, this trend comes as cities and towns have been working towards a transportation system that encourages is more walking and bicycling. The benefits include making travel more affordable, healthier, and better for the environment. But driving can be a hard habit to break. So how can municipalities make the road safer for everyone? Joining us now by phone is George Proyakis, who runs the Somerville, Massachusetts Mayor's Planning and Development Office. George, are you there? I am. Good morning. Uh, Good morning to you. Uh, So uh, we're talking about pedestrian safety. Tell us what happened in Somerville that that really got residents there talking about how to make their streets safer. Well, in Somerville, over the course of the last few years, we've been doing more and more development and more and more um, activities in the city that have caused people to be more interested in walking and biking. And as that has occurred and as we've gotten more people out of their cars and um, had a had this change occur uh, in the last in the last year year and a half we've had a couple of really tragic pedestrian deaths that have occurred um, by pedestrians crossing our streets um, and it's therefore become a pretty significant topic of discussion here about the ways to address it and make our roadways safe for all users. Uh, I mentioned that you're in Somerville and so how uh, does your proximity to uh, the Boston area impact your streets and the amount of traffic uh, your residents are seeing? So Interstate 93 that runs straight into Boston runs through our city, and uh, a lot of the traffic from the communities north of us comes through 93 into Boston every day, which over the course of the last few years has become more and more gridlocked. Um, As that happens, we get a lot of cut-through traffic coming through our local streets. And these are local streets that... uh, over the course of the last 50 years, were designed more and more to accommodate that traffic. The strategy being mainly if we could make a street wider, if we could make a street allow traffic to more smoothly flow, uh, it would it would alleviate the congestion issue. But as we focus on the congestion issue, we run the risk of making things more and more dangerous for the most vulnerable of our road users, our pedestrians, our our and and our folks on bicycles. 
So tell us about some of the changes. Uh, we heard from uh, uh, the city of New Haven police chief earlier saying that, you know, street design plays a part in uh, uh, what they see in terms of larger uh, intersections, uh, people that are trying to walk diagonally, um, worried uh, about, uh, you know, maybe not seeing a car turning right and hitting them. So what are some steps that you've taken, uh, again, uh, to maybe alleviate some of, of uh, people's uh, nervousness if they're, uh, you know, on their bicycle or maybe they just want to be on the bus? And are there dedicated bus lanes now in Somerville? So street design plays a huge part. Uh, For one example, um, our very aptly named Broadway, which is over 100 feet wide and right of way, uh, essentially had been four lanes of traffic, two in each direction. In some areas, left turn lanes in addition to that. In other areas, no lines on the street at all describing really where cars were supposed to be. Uh, for somebody standing on a, on, on a curb trying to cross, even at a crosswalk at an intersection, um, it becomes a daunting task to get across that street. For somebody who wants to switch from driving to bicycling, it's a, it's a difficult task. And our bus riders um, were being treated to some pretty significant traffic on that street as they tried to uh, do do something that would get their cars off the road by taking the bus to work every day. Uh, we restriped Broadway. We just using paint, and all we did in that circumstance was provide um, dedicated bike facilities and a and a and a bus lane in both directions that operates 24 hours a day, maintaining one lane for traffic. Um, traffic is going slower. Um, it's not extremely more difficult to drive through. It, it takes a little bit longer, but traffic moves at a slower speed. It's safer for pedestrians. The bus riders are getting to their destinations faster. Um, people are starting to figure out that you can bicycle on that street and not feel that it's dangerous, and it's a safer crossing for pedestrians. Uh, you can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, as we talk about uh, pedestrian safety in light of uh, fatalities uh, where uh, pedestrian bicyclists are, are getting hit by cars, uh, the numbers rising in the United States. Uh, Laura is calling from New Haven. Laura, go ahead. You're on the show. Hi. Um, I suggest that we start a new fashion trend and that people wear white coats because in the dark you can't even see reflective strips on rainy nights and it gets dark so early. But why not have pedestrians take matters into their hands and do everything they can, and bike riders, too, wear white? All right, Laura, thank you for your call. Uh, Georgia, do you want to react to uh, Laura, um, her point, uh, saying that uh, walkers and bicyclists should, uh, you know, take things into their own hands and do try to be as safe as possible? But again, it's putting the onus on people walking and biking. So I, I think anything one can do to be more safe is, is in their best interest. We do have to acknowledge that sometimes somebody gets out to walk and they're, you know, maybe just leaving lunch, leaving for lunch from work to go run a quick errand, and and they end up in whatever they wore that day. But certainly, uh, you know, what what I have tried to focus on is every imaginable solution to this problem, and um, and for a. For, for a circumstance where a pedestrian, one of the most vulnerable road users, one of the most exposed road users to potential danger, um, gets out there, um, there are a lot of things you can do, but some of the safest things you can do is just slow the speed of traffic. First of all, because it gives traffic more reaction time when a pedestrian does something. Second of all, 
because it uh, allows the opportunity for the pedestrian and driver to be more likely to actually connect and see each other, especially on those dark rainy nights when it is definitely difficult for everybody to see everything going on. Um, and then also as an advantage, and there is uh, quite a bit of data on this, if a pedestrian and a car do get into an accident, a pedestrian is far more likely to survive that accident at 25 miles an hour and below than they are if the car is going faster. Um, so in those unfortunate circumstances, if in general vehicle traffic in an urban area, mixed, mixed use with all sorts of activities and, and, and pedestrians and bicyclists all over the place, if the cars are driving 25 miles an hour or slower, the accidents are less likely to be fatal. And that's a significant part of the strategy as well. Uh, Paul's calling from Milford. Paul, you're on the show. Uh, yes. Hi. Um, gentleman just talked about speed, which obviously slower you go, the, the safer it's going to be. But I find that people or who are turning right on red, do not stop. They go right through, and they continue on the speed they're going to begin with. Some people slow down and turn right on red. Other people just turn right on red and don't have an idea, any idea who's coming or, uh, down the block or around the corner, and I think that's a real problem. Uh, thank you, Paul, uh, for uh, your call. Uh, also, uh, Mark is calling from Cheshire. Mark, are you there? Yes, I am. So, Mark, I, I understand you work in New Haven. Uh, tell us what you're seeing. I'm sorry. I think it says you work in New Haven. Tell, tell us what you're seeing. Yeah, I worked in New Haven until recently, and I live in Cheshire, and I see problems in both places. In Cheshire, the problem is uh, I, I use the bike path a lot of the Farmington Canal. There are a lot of people stop at the crosswalks, but there are a lot of people that just zoom through. They're often going over the speed limit, and they don't stop for uh, pedestrians. The, the thing I see in New Haven... The most is people really running red lights at excessive speed. Actually, what they do is when they see the red light, they hit the gas and go through. And uh, I've, I've had a couple of close calls. Mm. We've had people, we've actually had uh, a med student killed at one time in New Haven. And that's been a, that's been a big problem. Uh, and so I, and we heard we heard from the police chief uh, in New Haven earlier. Uh, when you hear about and see these things happening, I mean, what do you think the solution is, uh, Mark? Well, I think I think uh, pedestrians and bicyclists are in the wrong some of the time, but um, I think there needs to be some enforcement. I I don't like the idea of the red light cameras, but you know maybe it's time for that in Connecticut. So many people run red lights at excessive speeds. And, you know, the, I, I understand the police can't be at every intersection, but it would be nice if they would have some enforcement on those, especially places where they know that there's a constant problem. Mm. Well, Mark, uh, thank you for calling into the show. Again, this is where we live as we talk about uh, pedestrian uh, safety. On the phone with us uh, is um, um, George Proakis, who is uh, with uh, the town of, of Somerville, again, the Planning and Development Office, talking about some strategies uh, they have uh, done uh, to make their streets safer. Uh, joining us again, this time by phone, is Norm Garrick, who's a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Connecticut. Norm, are you there? Absolutely. <laughs> Wonderful. So we were talking about some of the research uh, into uh, why these uh, fatalities are rising over the last decade. You said it's not only uh, solely because of the way cars are being designed. Now we've heard from Somerville, Somerville about some strategies uh, to slow down traffic, to make it safer for bicyclists, uh, to have dedicated uh, bus lanes. Uh, you're, um, again, in Zurich, you've been there for some time. What are you seeing in other countries that maybe places like Connecticut can learn from? 
Well, the big thing is how we treat this, uh, the road space. Uh, is it solely for cars or is it for people in cities to use? Um, one of the articles I read while I was preparing for the show said, described a dis, a distra- someone walking and talking to a friend as a distracted pedestrian. And I'm thinking that if you design a place where walking and talking to a friend is considered a risky activity, then the problem is not with the person walking and talking, it's with the kind of environment that you have created. What we're seeing in cities like Zurich, cities in the U.S. also, Somerville, Cambridge, is that what they're trying to do is to remake streets so that pedestrians are comfortable um, there, that if an accident do occur, that it's not going to lead to a fatality. And that's the trend in many places that are dealing with this in the most effective way. Uh, when you uh, looked at data from the Netherlands uh, up and up through the 70s, uh, they were seeing similar uh, uh, fatality rates that the U.S. is seeing now. And so, again, uh, what happened with public opinion that changed the way people were thinking about designing their communities, uh, Norman? Well, in the Netherlands, they had a movement called Stop the Child Murder, referring to all the kids that were being killed by cars. And that was the spark that led to official action in terms of how streets were designed, in terms of laws that protected pedestrians and bikers, in terms of policies. So all of these different things worked together to change the environment. And now you look at the... um, the accident rates in those countries for pedestrians, and it's way lower. It's um, order, orders of magnitude, three, four times lower than we see in the U.S. Uh, we got a, a tweet from Kate uh, who writes, I'm a new e-bike commuter to work from Woodbridge into New Haven. It's a blast, but I do wish there were some more biking infrastructure. A protected lane down Edgewood would be huge. A protected lanes uh, seem to make sense, but uh, there doesn't happen in a lot of places, Norman. You know, why aren't cities and towns investing in this? Is it they can't break away from the idea that you need to fit as many cars as possible on the street and let them uh, keep moving? Well, interestingly, uh, pedestrian lanes uh, is something that is relatively new to the U.S. And up until maybe 10 years ago, it was, con- it was frowned on by the engineering um, and policy commu- community. And it was not until the city of Cambridge um, built the, the first protected lane in the U.S., that we started to see change. And now a lot of places, places like New York and Washington, D.C., are embracing the idea that we need protected lanes. And so we're seeing other cities getting onto the bandwagon now. And we, we definitely do need more, more of that in, the, in Connecticut. Uh, I want to go back to George Proakis again, who runs the Somerville, Massachusetts Mayor's Planning and Development Office. Protected lanes, something that you have there? So it's one one section has a protected lane on Broadway where we've done the bus lane. There's another stretch of road which is actually a location where the um where one of the pedestrian fatalities occurred on Powderhouse Boulevard where we have not done a protected lane. We're trying to study doing it. Uh the challenge we have um we have a relatively narrow roadway there and if we switch to a protected lane uh throughout the entire area in both directions, we actually would would lose a lot of parking. So we're having a conversation with the community on that street about the impacts of doing that. But I I think the the big value of looking at protected lanes where you can do it, or even bike lanes in general where you can do it, 
is that it provides a safer space for vulnerable road users. And as an added bonus, even in circumstances where there isn't a lot of bicycle traffic right now, it does two things. It allows bikes to be able to feel more comfortable and maybe start riding there. And it usually ends up narrowing travel lanes. And if you narrow the lanes for cars, cars tend to drive slower. Again, if not a single bike uses that bike lane, you have still made it safer for road users because the the cars are not speeding at that point. Again, you can join our conversation. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Sam's calling in from Avon. Sam, you're on the show. Hi. Uh, I think one of the major problems that I see is distracted driving. I cycle between 1,500 and 2,000 miles a year. I can't tell you how many times I've had people brush my elbows just to look over and see people on cell phones. Now, it's illegal to be on a cell phone texting or talking in Connecticut, yet there seems to be zero enforcement. I think that needs to change to a zero tolerance, start handing out some hefty fines for it. The other thing that's a joke is there's also a law in most states that pedestrians have the three-foot right-of-way on the side of any public street. I think that needs to be enforced as well. And until the state starts cracking down on some of the existing laws, I don't see the situation changing. Well, Sam, uh, thank you uh, for your call. And I wanted to go back to Norman Garrick again, a professor of civil and environmental engineering at the University of Connecticut. Uh, when we're thinking about, again, uh, designing communities, uh, also idea of getting people to not be so reliant on cars. I saw a story that uh, Kansas City is now uh, possibly offering uh, free bus rides uh, to people uh, to encourage people to not only use the bus, but uh, to help make travel equitable for all. Uh, again, this is just, uh, you know, one or two uh, cities uh, thinking about this here uh, in uh, our region or in our country. I mean, what needs to change, again, to get us out of that car mentality? Well, I think one of the things that has changed is um, the publicity that we're getting from people like you and shows like this that are relentlessly running down this issue, I think, really has changed how we think about car culture. Car culture is propped up to a large extent by a lot of ads from cars, from from car companies, a lot of money from people that want to maintain the status quo. So it's it's really important that we continue to have these discussions about how we can start to um, to put things into perspective, to talk about the importance of walking and biking and buses, and. Um, other ways that we can get people around um, urban places. Oh, it's funny, in Connecticut, I know you've, you're in Zurich now, uh, Norman, but again, the attention is often on, are we now going to be tolling cars and ways to improve our highways uh, that are crumbling? Uh, but there's not a lot of talk about, again, uh, thinking about different ways of uh, trying to get people out of cars and making uh, streets safer uh, for everyone. Uh, highways are still a, a number one priority uh, in many communities because people need to get places, and they can't always uh, use a bicycle uh, or walk. And so I guess uh, that's where we have to leave this conversation. But we really appreciate Norman Garrick giving us uh, some of his time, again, Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering at the University of Connecticut. Uh, Norman, thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Also, uh, it was really interesting to hear what Somerville um, is doing. Uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, uh, George Proakis, who runs the Somerville uh, Mayor's Planning and Development Office. Uh, George, thanks for joining us today here on Where We Live. 
for having me on. Uh, again, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, coming up, we're going to shift uh, focus, uh, and we want to talk more about student athletes. Should they be allowed to profit from their fame while playing college sports? We're going to talk about that after the break. You can join us, too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up Monday, it's officially 2020. That means a census taker may soon be knocking on your door. On the next Where We Live, we'll talk with NPR's Hansi Luang about efforts to get U.S. residents to fill out the census. We're also going to hear from Connecticut nonprofits about whether the state of Connecticut is doing enough to get an accurate count. You can join our conversation. That's Monday. Now, we're shifting topics away from pedestrian safety to college athletics. Should student athletes be allowed to make money off endorsement deals? Connecticut U.S. Senator Chris Murphy thinks so. He's issued three reports raising concerns over how the NCAA schools and coaches profit off college athletes. His latest report looks at how the health of student athletes is neglected. To talk more about this, joining us uh, via Zoom is Kavitha Davidson, co-host of the lead. It's a podcast for The Athletic. Kavitha, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, We know college athletics is a huge money-making industry. Uh, My producer was looking at uh, this Clemson. Clemson will play LSU for the College Football National Championships later this month. Uh, Average tickets are selling around $2,000, according to Ticket IQ. So who's making all the money, Kavitha? Frankly, it's it's the coaches um, and the athletic directors. I think if you look at these are these are studies that are put out every year. If you look at every state's highest paid public employee, for the most part, it's either a college football or college basketball player, with with a few exceptions here or there. So all of the money is basically going to the top, and uh, you know any money that's kind of left over, people people will look at the facilities that are being built, and you know there are some of these crazy. Uh, locker rooms that have aquariums in them uh, because they're not giving them to the players and they're certainly not tricking down to the actual labor force. Uh, in Connecticut, uh, Gino Ariema is certainly uh, one of the top uh, uh, top paid uh, uh, employees uh, in the state of Connecticut at, at UConn. So let's talk about what happened in California where there's a law that uh, may help players there earn money off their fame as athletes. Uh, can you explain that law to us? Yeah, so I think what's really important about this this law that that Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, just signed in September is this is not the universities compensating these athletes for play. This is not what is called pay for play. This is granting athletes uh, across all sports the right to make money off of their names, images, and likenesses. So what that means is that if an athlete uh, who plays basketball or football, but also soccer or gymnastics or women's basketball, clearly in the case of UConn, um, you know, wants to sign an endorsement deal with a local sneaker company or a local uh, merchandise company or wants to sign an autograph for money, he or she is allowed to do that. Now, there are a couple of caveats in that. Um, any of these deals can't interfere with existing deals that the university has. So, for example, if a UConn basketball player uh, wants to sign a deal with Nike, but UConn has a deal with Under Armour, that can't happen. Um, so there are several limitations here, um, but it really just means that that players will be able to profit in some way off of the fact that at least for the four years that they're playing a college sport, they are they are 
they are they are using their platform and they are known for the, the sport that they're playing, whatever happens before or after their, their college days are over. And so uh, once that law passed in California, how did that impact uh, the NCAA and uh, any thinking they had about uh, whether college athletes uh, should be making money off endorsement deals? Well, you know, we actually had Governor Newsom on our show uh, the day that he signed the bill, and he said very blatantly, the purpose of this bill, which was which was limited to, to California and is set to take effect in January of 2023, was to pressure the NCAA, other states, and then the NCAA as a whole to do something. So what you started to see immediately after this California bill was rumblings from other states. You saw this in Florida and Ohio. Um, but, but what this really did pressure the NCAA to do was address this wholesale. So about a month later, the NCAA Board of Governors, uh, who had been studying this before uh, Governor Newsom signed this bill, uh, came out with a statement that basically they announced um, a policy shift that uh, they would be making a recommendation to the NCAA as a whole and to its participant uh, universities to institute some way for college athletes to make money off of their names, images, and likenesses. This also, I'll, I'll say, needs to needs to be noted with as many limitations as it can, because one, um, what this really means is that the broader NCAA will have until this April to figure out what that means, and then any of any new rules must be implemented no later than January of next year. So there, there is going to be slightly, uh, you know, a year basically of us figuring out what this actually looks like. The thing that a lot of critics are pointing to is the language of the actual announcement that the Board of Governors came down, because it said a lot of things, but and a lot of vague things, frankly. But the number one thing it said was that whatever new policy actually does get formulated has to be, quote, consistent with the collegiate model. Mm. And if you've been following any of these discussions over you know, the last 10 years or so, the, the main point of contention is this idea of amateurism and this idea that the purity of college sports is based on athletes not being compensated and not being paid. So if you're interpreting, if you don't know how to interpret the word consistent with the collegiate model, that sounds a lot like how the NCAA has upheld amateurism all of these years. And so uh, you mentioned the, this uh, decision, so they're punting the, the, to the school, Division One, Two, II, and Three, to figure out um, how to make this distinction between college and professional sports? Um, it, it's it's slightly, they're, they're punting down the line is what I would say. There's, there's still going to be the distinction between college and professional sports. Again, this in no way opens up the floodgates to uh, colleges themselves paying these players for their labor and for, for their, their service on the court. What it does do is it kind of helps to expand California's bill, but some cynical people, some more some more critical people at the NCAA are basically saying that California's bill is fairly straightforward in what it allows athletes to do um, by 2023, whereas the NCAA attempting to bring this under their own jurisdiction uh, from an organization-wide standpoint will allow them to control and put in a lot more limitations in place than the California bill currently has.
Again, with us uh, by Zoom, uh, Kavitha Davidson, co-host of the lead podcast for The Athletic, as we talk about uh, should uh, student athletes at the college level uh, be paid for uh, when their names and likenesses uh, are used uh, or getting endorsement deals. Um, you can join our conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at Where We Live. You know, when some people think about uh, what college players should get, uh, many think about uh, full-ride scholarships and that they're getting an education. Uh, what has uh, what have studies shown, uh, Kavitha, in terms of the quality of education these athletes are even getting? Well, I mean, I, I, I understand that, that standpoint from a lot of people, especially people who have crippling college debt because they didn't play a sport. But at the same time, we only ever think of, first of all, the revenue generating sports, the athletes who play basketball and football. Um, and, and for the most part now, now receive uh, full scholarships, we'll have to remember that this is only a recent development, that the, you know, quote unquote, full scholarships that these particular athletes were receiving didn't actually cost the full, didn't actually cover the full cost of attending the university. So, you know, that's, that's one caveat. The second caveat is that if you play golf or if you play gymnastics, um, there was a great example, uh, a UCLA gymnast named Caitlin Ohashi who went viral last year um, because of her floor routines and, and you know, she won the NCAA championship. You know, she couldn't sign a book deal uh, while she was in college because of NCAA rules on on names, images, and likenesses, basically. Now, that's not the university paying her to be a gymnast. That is her capitalizing on, you know, the instant moment of fame that she had um, and not being able to make money off of that, even though there's clearly no pathway forward for Caitlin Oashi to be a professional gymnast. Um, and then, and then there is the point that you brought up, that is, what is the actual quality of the education that these athletes are getting? Now, some of them absolutely are, you know, committed to their schoolwork and are getting, you know, academic help in order to do that. But what we found, you know, there have been wide-ranging studies, the UNC study was probably the, the most widely read one, um, about, you know, so-called jock classes. And the idea that, especially for athletes who are in the, the more revenue-generating sports, their time commitments to their sport don't, don't allow them to be full-time students. And even if they did, the principle of it still is that athletes are the only students on campus who are not allowed a, a work-study program, who are not allowed to make money outside of, of their academics. And, and that's, I think, the unfairness that some people are pointing to. Well, the reason we're chatting with you, Kavitha, uh, our uh, U.S. Senator uh, Chris Murphy, as you know, has issued uh, several reports uh, critical of the NCAA, uh, of crit- critical of universities, coaches making a ton of money uh, on the backs of these uh, student athletes. Uh, so few of them ever make it pro uh, once they once they finish uh, school. Uh, Chris Murphy is also saying this is a civil rights issue. Uh, many of these players are coming um, from disadvantaged backgrounds, uh, and these coaches coaches who are making a ton of money uh, are white. And so, uh, you know, what has been the reaction in the sports world to what uh, Senator Murphy is suggesting suggesting of of how to uh, make this more equitable? Yeah, I mean, I think that these are all points that are, are often discussed. First of all, the socioeconomic backgrounds of these players, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a, it's a big talking point and it's absolutely true that, you know, uh, 
sports, especially basketball and football, are seen as the only path to a college scholarship for some of these kids from these backgrounds. And then beyond that, you know, making it to the pros is the only path out of poverty. Um, and that's certainly true in a lot of these cases. But, you know, it, it really isn't it really isn't as as much of a pathway as we think it is. Eighty seven percent of Division one uh, men's basketball players believe they're going to make it pro. And that number is less than 10%. Um, and then once they do make it pro, you know, we've actually seen this interesting phenomenon where 57% of NBA players come from middle class to upper middle class backgrounds. Um, certainly the the 43% that are coming from poor backgrounds have to be considered here because, you know, for a lot of them, basketball and sports were the only way out, so to speak. But then when you're also talking about college sports, you're kind of, you're talking about that false promise, really. I mean, that number, I can't, I can't recall what that number is for football players, but that number of players that really do believe that the four years that they're putting in for college, uh, for college sports is going to make them is going to get them to the pros it's it's a false promise and the ncaa if they're not delivering on that promise and they're not delivering on the education promise then we kind of have to ask what they're actually delivering mm. we just have a couple minutes left uh, kavitha and so we talked about this law that passed in california uh, any other states do you think that that, that are also thinking about this um, so Ohio and Florida have been exploring this. I know New York was exploring this as well. It really does seem at this point that people are trying to figure out what the California bill is going to look like um, and how that's going to play out. But because that doesn't get implemented until 2023 and the NCAA's broader announcement has uh, has has given itself a January 2021 deadline, I would predict that most states would kind of pass the book back to the NCAA uh, and see what, what what their legislation ends up looking like. Uh, we're also uh, in a year where uh, the presidential race is on the minds of many. Uh, any uh, talk from candidates about this issue? Yeah, we actually had Senator Cory Booker on our show uh, a few weeks after the uh, after Gavin Newsom passed his bill, and he's actually made sports writ large uh, a part of his platform. Um, you know, talking about the NCAA pay thing, but as well as MLB's antitrust exemption, for example. Like, there's so many aspects of sports that. Um, Senator Booker feels should come under better government control. And while we have regulatory boards in place to address some of these things, it just kind of hasn't happened, especially when you look at something like equal pay for women athletes and equal uh, broadcast and television coverage for women athletes. So he had this proposal um, as part of his platform to create a federal board just to govern sports. Um, and you know, some people will say, well, we already have all these other boards to do that. That's true. We are also one of the only Western nations that doesn't actually have a centralized body to govern issues of sports. The UK, for example, has an entire member of parliament who is the minister of sport. So so that's that's something that, that Senator Booker seems to have been prioritizing. Uh, and, and we'll see if we hear any more of it from the other candidates in the weeks to come. We'll have to leave it there. Kavitha Davidson, co-host of The Lead podcast for The Athletic. We appreciate your time, Kavitha. Thanks. Thank you so much. Uh, today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. You can learn more about the show. Just download Where We Live on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to Betsy Kaplan on the phones today. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.